This is an ABC podcast. This is the Ritz and Hewers podcast. David Astle in the chair and uh, my opportunity to introduce the two regular panellists. We're at least there um, next to regular, as regular as you will ever get on Ritz and Cures. Uh, welcome, Professor Steve Ellen, who is a psychiatrist at Peter Mac and the author, co-author of uh, Mental. Welcome, Steve. G'day, David. Good to see you again. You too. And Katie Miller making a return visit after uh, last week and, in fact, uh, looking forward to tonight's topic particularly uh, on both fronts. Uh, welcome, Katie, Melbourne lawyer. Thanks very much for having me. And now, in fact, last week we were talking about uh, how any um, findings, as as it stood, uh, by on GPs, uh, clinicians, and uh, physicians, uh, specialists, would remain on public record. However, due to petitions, I understand APRA has revised that uh, stance. Yes. Yeah, so we had the discussion about whether it's fair that every investigation done into you is linked to your name for forever and a day. And uh, APRA, the um, Health Practitioners Regulatory Authority and the Medical Board, were doing that. So even if someone made a complaint where nothing was found, it was linked to you. And the where there's smoke, there's fire. We asked, was it a fair thing? And lots, there was a huge outcry in the public last week from the AMA, various groups and petitions. And as it turned out, it got overturned. So they're no longer linking the, um, the non, um, what's the word, Katie, the non-negative findings where there's no adverse the, find, the findings that are not substantiated. Thank you. <laughs> well, hang on. That sounds like the jury's still out. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's where the, the case is over, complete, nothing was found, so it doesn't stick. So the smoke and fire bit's gone, All which right. is, I think is a really good outcome. We, uh, Katie, do you have a... Um do you have a Twitter handle? Do you have a Twitter account? I do. I'm at natural underscore justice. Natural justice. Natural underscore justice. And Steve, I know you do. I do, but I'm just Steve underscore Ellen. Okay. Yeah. How <laughs> sad. I'll ask you, Katie, how does, uh, how does natural underscore justice uh, differentiate from, uh, from uh, Katie Miller, Melbourne lawyer? So natural underscore justice is basically Katie Miller, Melbourne lawyer. Um, I have... I've been experimenting or sort of using social media now for oh, probably about eight years. And it's interesting how my use of social media has sort of changed as sort of, you know, my public profile has changed. Uh, when I started out, I did have a few synonymous sort of accounts and it was really just talking about, you know, footy and what I ate for breakfast. Um, and as I started, you know, having more opportunities to speak in public, I got to this point where I went, oh, look, there's no point having a synonymous account. People are going to be able to figure out it's me because, you know, who else talks about, you know, privacy and technology and law and administrative law and footy? Um, so <laughs> Who's I your team, just to clarify, before we go any further? The Western Bulldogs. Okay, good. It's all good. Yes, carry on. Uh, and so I opened up uh, the Natural Justice account. Um, so things that I talk about are things that are of interest to me professionally. Uh, I used to put in a bit of personal stuff there, but after certain events in 2016, I actually had to open up another Twitter account uh, and In Katie Lifetime is now where you can follow my Western Bulldogs tweets. <laughs> What's it called? In Katie Lifetime? In Katie Lifetime. Oh. Hey, can I just as an aside, because I know yeah, you're a wordsmith, yes. I've never, ever, ever heard the word how do you pronounce it? Pseudonymous, like anonymous? Pseudonymous. Pseudonymous. I've never heard that until I read, until I started reading up stuff you'd sent me tonight, Katie, for this segment. Is that a word? It, it is, is a word. absolutely yeah, a word. You bet. And it is a word that is enshrined in our privacy legislation. So we have uh, certain privacy principles that govern how our personal information is dealt with by both government and private um, 
private organisations. Uh, and one of the privacy principles, it doesn't get talked about a lot, but one of them is that uh, where you uh, can access services anonymously or pseudonymously, then you should be given the option to do so. I'm so dopey. I've never heard it in my whole life. I would be remiss not to just take a few steps back and uh, ask if you're prepared to explain what was this incident that uh, made you change your, uh, uh, to fork or, or um, divide the personal and the professional? Uh, you mean between the two yeah, current accounts? Yeah. Oh, it was the uh, grand final of oh, the Western it? Bulldogs you just, won in 2016. You just went a little bit nuts. <laughs> so, well, and I, I thought it was all fine until um, I was giving a few presentations uh, to some uni students and um, twice in one week I was introduced as, you know, this is Katie Miller. She talks a lot about law and technology. You can follow her at Natural Justice. Um, she also tweets a lot about football. And when it happened the second time in a week, I went, hang on a second, I don't talk that much about football. Uh, and, of course, went back through my tweets and went, oh, oh dear, I'm talking about it quite a lot. The well, yeah. that is very much on point because tonight's topic is, in fact, how the personal and particularly the sort of electronic vestige of the personal can bleed into the professional. Uh, it's in light of several cases that are going on at the moment, particularly at uh, uh, Cricket Australia. Steve, what is your uh, – I mean, even as uh, in the area of uh, medicine, is there is there a policy that uh, has been implemented by Peter Mack in your case or – are you aware of other clinics issuing a policy when it comes to um, clinicians and their own uh, personal accounts on social media? I think all of the big um, organisations are gradually introducing their social media policy, but we've all had media policies that sort of subsume it and have have done so for decades. So I've always been super careful, even coming on the radio, if I'm ever talking about anything controversial, I touch base with the hospital first and let them know. And I've got to say, probably 19 times out of 20, they say, no, you're on, you're a private individual, people can differentiate you from the hospital, and that's fine. But like, there's the odd difficult one. I recently wrote about how when I had depression, I occasionally smoked marijuana. Mm. And uh, I wrote that I, before I told the hospital, but as it was being published, I, I went and had a word to the hospital and said, look, heads up, you know, this is a little bit controversial. And they were really good about it. They said, no, again, people can differentiate between you and the hospital. And that's why this topic tonight on social media surpri surprises me a little. I'm not, how does it surprise you? Well, I think it, the technology's moved ahead of where we are in our behaviour and our practice in workplace. So people, um, they get very, I think workplaces get overly sensitive about what's said on, in social media and individuals underestimate that they don't realise that social media is not like talking to their friend at the pub, they're actually publishing something. So this is where I think that not only my social media journey has been, you know, developing over the last eight mm -hmm. years, I think the cases that we are seeing have also started to change over the last eight years. So when we first started seeing people um, sacked or disciplined for what they were doing on social media, it was often because they were talking about what was happening at work. So they were complaining about work colleagues, they were engaging in bullying or discriminatory behaviour toward, towards colleagues. And there was this question about, well, has the workplace done enough through things like social media policies, through training, um, to actually set the expectations about what is appropriate use of social media with the workplace. Um, I think what's interesting about this recent incident with Cricket Australia is that what we are seeing is a person who is employed by Cricket Australia. Um, I understand she's uh, got a sort of public relations, government relations sort of Angela Williamson role. she is. Uh, yep. She works with PR in Hobart. Yes, mm -hmm. um, and she has been um, tweeting in her private capacity about 
uh, a political issue that she feels very um, strongly about. Uh, and Cricket Australia has decided, I believe she's been terminated, um, and it is because of the comments that she has made. And I understand that Cricket Australia is saying that uh, in doing making those comments, um, she has either adversely sort of affected the relationship that they have with the government or brought Cricket Australia into disrepute. I, just on that issue, and obviously, in fact, uh, if you would love to uh, hear Angela Williamson herself um, uh, explain her case and her situation, I do know that uh, Raf Epstein caught up with Angela at the quite early in the show. So, if you listen back onto the uh, uh, the Listen Back service on ABC website, you can hear an interview with Raf and Angela just after the sort of uh, the four pm or the four thirty pm uh, mark. But as I understand it with the case of Williamson and Cricket Australia, uh, the, there is a policy in place that Cricket Australia um, has that is all about offensive comments. And yet I would argue that uh, in the case of Williamson, that her comments were political and they were, uh, they were an opinion. They w- there was nothing offensive as such. So even there's two issues here. One is... Does a workplace have the right to put for to put in a social media policy, and that if you contravene that, that's grounds for dismissal? And secondly, how do you differentiate between an offensive comment and what the um, the poster or the tweeter would argue as being a personal or political comment? So the first thing I'll say is that I'm I'm not really going to say anything about what findings might be made about the Williamson case because it's before Fair Work Commission and so they will be the ones that will need to make these sorts of decisions. Um, But in terms of your first question of, you know, can companies have social media policies? They absolutely can and in fact they absolutely must and should Um, because if we go back to the earlier cases, the reason why the Fair Work Commission did overturn some of the early terminations is because the company just hadn't done the thinking about, well, what are our expectations about social media use? And they hadn't communicated that to individuals. So um, it was a lot harder for people to claim that, you know, uh, what was done in personal time affected work time. Um, so, you know, a social media policy is really about the company having a conversation with their staff about what is acceptable and what is not. What I think is interesting about some of the more recent cases uh, is that we are starting to see those social media policies being applied. And although it's supposed to, you know, these policies were supposed to clarify things, um, there are some areas where it's really just kind of opened up a whole raft of new questions. So social media policies are great when it's really just confirming other policies that you have, especially around bullying and discrimination and, and things like that, where it's, you know, we've still got a lot more questions than we have answers are things like, well, how do you engage in personal opinions, political opinions, you know, um, political conduct uh, that occurs in your personal life um, where the company is saying, well, stakeholders or our clients may have views about that as well. See, I find the Cricket Australia case bizarre because, in essence, it's in all the papers. She was commenting about the political issue of access to abortion in Tasmania. Now, I don't see how in a million years that could bring cricket into into disrepute, and I don't see how it impacts on cricket in the slightest. Well, let's take Katie's. You know, we should be we should be cautionary about this, I suppose, because it is in front of the uh, fair the Fair Trade Commission. Oh, really? But it's all over the papers, so we still can't talk. Uh, Well, I don't know. The Fair Work Commission is going to the Fair Work Commission. What some of the things that they will look 
look at is they are going to look at things like the social media policy. They'll look at what actions were taken to actually, you know, raise this with um, Ms Williamson about, um, you know, so did they conduct an investigation? Did they give her a warning? Did they give her, you know, an opportunity yep. to rectify any issue that they saw? So these are all questions of fact that they are going to need to um, resolve. Um, and there is, you know, basically this rule that says if something is before a court, then you can be in contempt if you say things um, that could interfere with their ability to bring their independent mind to those facts. Okay, well, let me move to a different case where I do get it. I can't remember the details. You'll know it, but it was the immigration worker who put a whole lot of tweets out there criticising the immigration department under a fake name, which apparently is called a pseudonymous name. I'm joking. Um, But under a fake name, and it became public, of course. Now, I get, even though... I might have agreed with his politics. I get why they would want to sack him because he's clearly bringing his organisation into disrepute. He's potentially using privileged information or potentially using stuff that he got through his job that's not fair. And also I would think the public have an expectation that everyone working in a given government department might be neutral, so to speak. And so I get that one. That, do you agree? Did you think that one was fair? So this is one where I think um, this is where a lot of the social media policies, you know, you read them and you go, okay, that makes sense. So that idea of you shouldn't be disclosing on social media things, um, information that you've received from your job. Um, and part of that is because when people, you know, apply for visas or, you know, go to a doctor or wherever they're sort of engaging with people and handing over personal information, they're assuming that that's being used um, for their purposes, will be kept confidential and won't then be shared on social media. So I think that um, that's an area where it's probably a bit clearer. Where it gets difficult with public servants, though, is that um, public servants are working for government and government are engaged in political activity. And so the question then becomes, okay, fine, let's just say it's um, a Department of Immigration person. You say, well, don't comment on anything the Department of Immigration is doing. People might be able to accept that. But what if you want to comment on something that the Department of Education is doing or the Department of Human Services or the Department of Health? Um, And that's an area where where it's equally as grey. How how many teeth does the um, caveat have on a Twitter biography or a Facebook biography saying these comments are personal and not related to my employment? That's absolutely what, none. Absolutely <laughs> That's none. What every, I don't know if it still does, okay, but about four or five years ago, whenever you looked up any ABC person on Twitter, it had that sentence. Well, why do we, it was so like many it was people persist with that, though. It's like putting a little C after you work in a circle. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's, it's a funny thing because it's, um, it was started, um, we can actually identify who was patient zero with this oh, really? Can we? Um, we can. Now, I don't, I, don't know, I don't know the name, but I think he worked for the New York Times, and he has since written about just how ridiculous it is. And Is I think right? it was. it started out in the days when we were still sort of figuring out what this Twitter thing was. Mm -hmm. Media companies had not yet sort of harnessed it and sort of said, yep, we're going to actually use our people to, you know, push our brand through social media. So um, I think it was his attempt at trying to delineate. Um, And like everything, monkey see, monkey do, each new person who came on and was sort of exploring it in a tentative (laughs) way said, I'll put that on too. I'll do what he did. (laughs) Can I ask a quick question, Katie? So social media I get, and we know what the definition is. It's basically Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. What about things like all of these... Um, messaging things like WhatsApp is what I'm thinking of, where people often have groups with 20 or 30 people. They're often workplace groups and they treat them as if they're private conversations, but they're publishing things effectively in front of 20 or 30 people. Does that count as social media policy? Does that fall under the umbrella? So the social media policy should make that clear. Um, And some social media policies will say that it's not just what we think of as the social media platforms, but it includes blogs. um, It can include 
messaging apps. It can include email. So that's really about the organisation needing to make clear what sort of communications are you worried about. Right. All right. Well, it's uh, the time is 28 past eight. Uh, you're with David Astle, host of the Ritz and Cures, but really the drivers of, uh, of of this particular topic and this segment, wonderful segment we have every Tuesday. Professor Steve Ellen, who's a psychiatrist at Peter Mac Hospital, co-author of Mental, and Katie Miller, a Melbourne lawyer and an avid Bulldogs fan, as her both her Twitter feeds would suggest, though one synonymously, apparently. No, no, I, I know they are not. Uh, 28 past eight, as I said. Coming up very shortly, uh, we'll be joined by Dr. David Bradford, who is the author of a new book called Tell Me I'm Okay. Now, David, is, uh, he's led a, an incredible life, both as a doctor in Vietnam, a surgeon in England, and most importantly, a pioneer uh, as one of Australia's first sexual health doctors working in the area of HIV and AIDS. And we'll be talking to David uh, Dr. David Bradford, about his time uh, in the medical field across all those sectors. I can't wait to uh, to hear the stories and the lessons learnt and insights gleaned in that uh, time as a uh, professional. Katie Miller, Melbourne lawyer, uh, and Professor Steve Ellen, uh, Peter Mack, psychiatrist, um, and myself, David Astle, uh, are now joined by Dr. David Bradford who is a sexual health and HIV AIDS physician. Doc, David is a, a man who's been in several battlefields, um, most notably in Vietnam as a, uh, as a doctor, but also in the battlefields of HIV and AIDS. And uh, David is here to join us to tell us about um, the, uh, the small losses but the great wins in both those uh, campaigns. Welcome, David. Thank you very much. Um, it's, it's, you have such an illustrious career um, behind you. It's very difficult to know where to start. But um, I, I'm going to start with Vietnam because it's amazing to meet someone who was there in the field as a doctor. Um, how, how kind of um, vanilla were you? How suburban were you before you were dropped into that kind of drastic situation? I was totally vanilla. <laughs> <laughs> All vanilla. Tell us about um, th- those early impressions of the first month in Vietnam. My first month in Vietnam was, um, I'd have to say, a very steep learning curve. <laughs> and it was also getting used to the environment. Um, I had only been in the army um, three months when I went to Vietnam. Um, they gave us a crash course at Hillsville. And uh, then I had a week and a half of what was called jungle training. Um, which in Hillsville? I, no, no, no. That was up in Queensland. Oh, right. And I shared it with um, a padre and a psychologist and a dentist. Sounds like a joke. We were all hopeless. <laughs> <laughs> totally hopeless. Uh, and there, then I arrived in Vietnam. Now, fortunately, I suppose, from, from my personal point of view, I was not um, sent to work with the infantry, but uh, with the artillery. And the artillery, of course, sit back a little and fire their guns. And uh, so I looked after something like about 600 to 700 gunners for a year. Um, And it was an extraordinary experience. I just can't imagine what that's like because in my medical practice, I'm always uncomfortable when when I'm out of my comfort zone. Mm. I don't like working in areas where I don't know what's going on. I balked at going to some outback places as a student and a junior doctor because I thought I'm going to see things that I'm not good at and it always makes me nervous. How did you go off to war then in Vietnam where you're going to see... There's no way you're trained to deal with someone who might have been shot in the face or had their leg blown off and things like that, surely. What, what, what made you able to do that? What? 
Well, what made well you I suppose I was young, you know, and when you're young, you do things that you wouldn't ever do again. And uh, I think I was kind of excited at the prospect of military, getting some experience in military surgery because I thought I wanted to be a surgeon then. Right. And I went off and I was a gunner's doctor and uh, I saw a few battlefield injuries, not too many, and a lot of people who got their hands caught in the breech block and stuff like that. But mostly I treated venereal diseases and uh, that's where I gained my, my, my lifetime interest. Hmm. We, we can be grateful for the, um, in fact, the R&R of soldiers in Vietnam that uh, opened the doorway for your incredible trailblazing uh, career in HIV and AIDS. Uh, there was, there was, yeah, England in, England in between there, was there not, David? There was indeed. Hmm. I, I, you see, I came from a religious background and my, my family would not have looked kindly on me becoming a venereologist, as it was called in those days. Um, and so I was interested in surgery and I went off to England to train as a surgeon. And I got to be a middle grade registrar and I passed a couple of exams in England. And then I met my lifetime partner, and I'm gay, and he, another man, and that was pretty hard for my family to swallow. Um, but it, I decided that when he came to live with me in England, he was an Australian mm-hmm. too, when he came to live with me in England, that um, getting used to living with um, a partner took a lot more effort than I was able to give to it if I pursued a surgical degree. And so I thought, well, my real interest is sexually transmitted infections, and now that my parents have had to cope with the fact that I've got a gay partner, maybe they can cope with the fact that I want to be a sexual health physician. <laughs> well, and I mean, you talked about, you know, your family wouldn't have been able to cope with this. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of thinking in the 1960s and the 1970s, uh, talking about sexual health would have been something that would be difficult for the community uh, to cope with. I mean, what, what was it like socially um, being on the one hand, a highly respected professional in terms of being a medico, yes. but then also being a doctor who talked about sexually transmitted diseases. Well, uh, uh, you're quite right. I mean, I, it rather sort of put the kibosh on the early stages of a dinner, par- dinner party I might have been invited to <laughs> until, you know, people had had a few drinks. And then, you know, I was used to people sort of sidling up to me and saying, um, Doctor, um, could I have a little word with you? <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but it was also um, dealing with some of my colleagues because um, sexual health in those days was not really a profession that – or a specialty that um, most doctors would want to go into. And you know, you, we were looked down on a bit by our colleagues. You said the word venereologist. Was that a word that existed in the mid-70s or it's a, it's a field that has basically become more enshrined and, and um, kind of codified nowadays? Oh, yes. It was well known um, from, I suppose, from really the, the time of the Venereal Diseases Act which were somewhere like around the First World War stage. Okay. So okay. it was well accepted. But in England, they changed the name from venereologist to genitourinary physician, which really was mm, a bit of a handful. <laughs> Stephen, you're worrying about the word synonymous. <laughs> I, know, I can't pronounce any word that's got more than two syllables, so I'm lost. That's why I could never work in that field. Um, but I know, and after England, you came back to Australia and you took over the what's now called, I think, Melbourne Sexual Health. What was it called back then? The- it was called the Melbourne Communicable Disease. Centre in Little Lonsdale Street. But I do remember back then the, the sort of the stigma 
around it. You know, it was considered just an odd area to work. And it was cons- like we were, no- we were, as junior doctors back then, we didn't even really know how to take a sexual history. We were very nervous if we had to ask about um, the penis or anything like that and rashes. We would go bright red ourselves. Um, and we basically, everyone just left it to, if you had a problem like that, it was basically, you know, head up, head up to the clinic. Yes. And, uh, but, you know, in the early days, it didn't have a great reputation, did it? No, it didn't. It didn't. And, uh, and, and some medical schools uh, required students to come for a morning or an afternoon to the clinic and um, they would sit in with one of the doctors. And um, I remember that some of, the, some of the students were really apprehensive and really uneasy. Um, and there were the, the, the nice few who, who sort of got it immediately. Uh, and how, how did you uh, mollify and um, sort of equip those who were so diffident about it? Well, it was, it was difficult. And I think you had to allow for the fact that people who were going to be brain surgeons were never going to be really interested in in sexual health. And uh, I think that's just one of those things. And some doctors are adapted to some things and some are adapted to others. Unfortunately, medicine is a broad enough church to be able to accommodate that. And can I just say too, the term you're using now, sexual health, I love that term so much more because it it broadens the whole scope out from just the, you know sexually transmitted diseases yes. to everything to do with your sexuality and and, and it's a mu- it's a much nicer term. So can you tell us what did you do in the early days of um, the clinic to try and uh, make it more welcoming and uh, open to the community? Ah, well, that was a major challenge because the clinic didn't have a good reputation when I first came there. My predecessor had been a rather staunch Catholic and. Um, if any doctor could have been more ill-suited for working in the field of sexual health than him, I, it would be hard to imagine. <laughs> um, so there was a lot of work to do and, and, and uh, particularly to build bridges between some of the marginalised groups who we needed to reach, like gay men, like um, sex workers um, and like people who used drugs um and so it was a, it was a it was quite hard to do that and we and fortunately i i realized that sexual health was a team effort and it wasn't just dependent on doctors but it was dependent on our other staff particularly the nurses but also psychologists counselors and so on and and and, and welding a team was one way of approaching the problem and what was a uh, what was a successful move in terms of bridging out to those groups that you mentioned, making it uh, breaking down that that stigma and creating much more of a, a a kind of open dialogue with those groups? Yes, it was a matter of making f- people feel comfortable about coming to the clinic, and um, up to then people had approached it, um, I think, rather warily and had felt most uncomfortable. And had been made to feel uncomfortable by by previous sort mm-hmm. of policies and climate. I mean, we're talking about how you know you sort of changed the way that sexual health um, was sort of done, uh, but that idea of you know using multiple sort of disciplines, engaging with the community. I mean, that's really orthodox now, I think, in health and it's certainly where we're heading with law. But I mean, if we go back again to sort of you know the nineteen seventies, I'm assuming that it wasn't the done thing. There, so I mean, in some ways, we're not just talking about a revolution in sexual health, but actually in the way mm. that you do medicine. Indeed, and I think that um, the coming of HIV and AIDS 
was really a major driver in in changing the way in which the profession looked at um, at those issues and 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 widening the the capacity that the profession had to deal with them. The other thing that strikes me, I'm going to get, I want to get onto HIV next, but the other thing that strikes me in terms of a current parallel is a little bit um, along the lines of the injecting rooms, where a oh, lot yeah. of people current, you know, in the last five years have basically said, why do we need to help these people? It's their own problem. It was like that back then from my memory. The attitudes around, and I trained at St Vincent's, so I was at a Catholic hospital, you know, a lot, and I'm not criticising them because no, there was a lot no. of incredibly passionate and um, empathic people there too, but some, a, an overwhelming attitude was... Do we really need to be getting involved in this as doctors? Come on, if they're going to go and catch these diseases, that was there was a, there was an enormous stigma around it, which is why I admired the work you did so much. Mm. And of course, by the you'd made the you know I want to do that. You know, at some when did the first HIV patient come in? I'm just trying to think of the dates now. My my first HIV patient came in in 1985. Right. Mm. I, I mean, we were expecting it. Um, we'd heard all about it from America. And I knew that this was going to happen. And um, and when the first patient came into the clinic and rocked in, it turned out to be a good friend of mine. And that was hard to deal with. It's uh, quarter to nine. You're with uh, David Astle. And we're chatting with uh, Dr. David Bradford, who's a sexual health and HIV AIDS physician. Uh, as part of the Ritz and Cures segment, uh, we're with Katie Miller, who's a Melbourne lawyer, and Professor Steve Ellen. Please tell us a little more about that, uh, David. Um, that must have been a, a challenging, um, a, a challenging consultation on so many levels. It was extremely challenging. He came in and he said to me, um, he he hadn't made an appointment. He rocked up one morning and uh, said, "I want to see David." And they said, "Well, he's the director, and you can't just walk in and see the director." And uh, he persisted, and they came and told me. And when they told me his name. I was happy to see him. I took him into the clinic. He dropped his trousers and pointed at a purple spot on his thigh and said, what's this? Um, and he was obviously desperately apprehensive. And, you know, from I'd never seen it before. And from looking at pictures in the American uh, journals and medical literature, I knew that it was Kaposi's sarcoma. And he had some other signs that were consistent with his immune system being depressed. Um, and I had to break the news to him. I had to take a biopsy. I had to do an HIV test, which had only just become available. Um, and, you know, I had to, you know, try and provide some sort of comfort to him when I knew that really the outlook was very poor. And so that was a very desperate time for me. Well, I mean, and I was going to say, you know, that idea of, you know that the this disease is likely to be hitting the shores soon. You know that you're going to get that first patient that you're going to need to give this grim diagnosis to. Um, and I was going to ask, how did that make you feel? But then you sort of say, oh, and it was a friend of mine, um, mm. which, you know, again, just kind of brings in the fact that you're so... You know, the clinic by design was connected to the community. Yes. And then this happened. I, I, just, I just wanted to know how that felt as a human being. Well, I describe in my book how I, I went back to my office. It was lunchtime after I'd finished that consultation. I went back to my office and I sat down and I put my head in my hands because my worst fears had materialised. And, um, and, you know, I thought to myself, how are the next few years going to be 
you know, I was a member of the gay community. I knew lots of people in the gay community here in Melbourne. Um, there were many friends. There were colleagues, other gay doctors who I knew. And we all had to face this together and we knew so little about it. And I thought, you know, is my lot going to be having to break the news that somebody has AIDS to friends, to other gay men, um, over and over and over again? And it was, it was pretty terrible. It, it would seem in the short term that that was the role you played until yep. development started creeping into the field. Tell us about the first ray of light, the first sense of hope that uh, progress was finally being made against this HIV and well, AIDS? Well, that happened. By then I had moved to Cairns um, and I was the Director of Sexual Health for the Cairns Sexual Health Service um, and um, I had a, a patient who kind of exemplified this. He was a young Aboriginal man. He'd been in Sydney. He'd had a lover. He was a gay man. He had a lover who had died of AIDS he himself was also HIV positive and he decided to leave Sydney and come back to Cairns, spend time there with his family and his extended family. Came into the clinic and asked me to... He hadn't, because of his partner dying, he hadn't been able to get checkups regularly and he came in to get me to test him and see how he was. And um, unfortunately, his um, immune function, as indicated in tests, were, was quite low. I talked to him about starting the only drug we had then, which was AZT, and he said um, he didn't want anything to do with that. Um, he didn't want to have any treatment until such time as I could assure him that the treatment was likely to be effective. And this was, what, about 1995. And it wasn't until the, towards the end of 1996 that effective treatments became available and I was able to say to him, and I should say that in that intervening time, his T-cell count, his immune function had gone even lower mm. so that he was in great risk of developing AIDS. Um, I, had, I was able to say to him, hope is on the horizon. We've got this combination of drugs that looks from all reports to be effective and to be relatively free from side effects. It was a great moment. Yeah, it's a wonderful moment. I mean, particularly after such a dark veil that you had yes. been through in the, in the initial years. I still remember we had patients who were, you know, really, we thought had months to live when the um, combination therapies came in. And 10 years later, you know, a lot of them were still going strong. It was amazing. I think the thing we forget too is just the extreme discrimination and um, uncertainty. You know, I remember when I went into the area and when it worked to work at Fairfield Hospital, we still had patients who would go to someone's house for a dinner party and afterwards people were throwing out the plates when they found out they had HIV and, and things like that. And even the medical staff, there was lots of uncertainty, especially early on. Um, you know, do you remember, can you give us some examples of the discrimination? It was just extreme in my memory. Oh, there were, in the, in the early days, in hospitals, there were examples of, you know, people who delivered meals, leaving them outside people's rooms, not being willing to take them into the patient. Um, there was, um, you know, there were, there were prominent doctors, and particularly in the surgical field, who were um, not willing to operate on people unless they had had an HIV test. And if a patient was unwilling to have a test, they'd refuse to operate on them. There were patients who, there were doctors who refused to 
see people who um, were HIV positive so that we GPs who were looking after people who were positive had to get to know, you know, reliable surgeons, orthopaedics, specialists, dermatologists and eye, eye surgeons who would be prepared to see patients so that the patient wouldn't have to undergo the embarrassment the of going to mm. see someone only to be, you know, either treated really badly or turned aside. I'm assuming that there have been diseases in the past that we couldn't control or that there wasn't, you know, a workable sort of treatment for. Um, And I'm just curious why it was HIV AIDS that, you know, that had this sort of discrimination. I mean, I've I've never heard about this with any other sort of disease in the past. What was it about HIV and AIDS um, that meant that even medical professionals um, were behaving like this? Well, it was a predominantly a sexually transmitted infection and it was to do with sex um, and not just ordinary sex but um, supposedly unnatural sex. And so that um, this, I think, had a, a prominent part mm. to play. I also think, though, we were scared yeah. stiff. Oh. So in a mm. couple of generations before, we hadn't none of our lifetimes, my any of the doctors I knew, had we faced something like this. And... And like a lot of the surgeons in particular, they weren't 100% sure how you caught HIV and they were scared stiff. They were scared that if they got a needle stick injury, which were common back then, we didn't have nearly the same precautions we do now, they'd never be able to practice again and Mm. they'd get this illness that, again, they had stigmatising attitudes to, that Mm. it was a gay plague and horrible Mm. things like that. And, of course, we had the Grim Reaper campaign. So it was a combination of the things you just said, but also extreme fear. We were scared. A lot of people didn't want to go near Fairfield Hospital. What, what changed, David? What, what what was the trigger or the what was the tipping point that saw the wider acceptance of the community and saw HIV AIDS as being a communal and a shared problem? I think it was good leadership. Um, I think we have to be supremely grateful that Neil Blewett was the federal minister at the time because he was able to develop policies that were sensible, that were not based on bigotry, they were not based on stigmatising. And he wisely sought the help and the advice of people from the affected communities, gay men particularly, but sex workers, intravenous drug users and so on. And and I think that was, it, you know, looking back, it's, it's hard to conceptualise exactly what a, how he went out on a limb, I think, and how the most amazing thing was that he was able to get bipartisan support eventually throughout Australia. The Jockey Peterson government in Queensland was the last sort of ditch effort where you were practicing i have to add (laughs) yeah well he'd gone by the time i got to practice in cairns (laughs) um david katie you got a question i was just wondering i mean what else has changed because of hiv aids i mean steve you were sort of talking about you know needle stick injuries were really common then like when i think about just the way that you know a gp sort of immediately reaches for gloves and, and just our whole way of practicing i mean What changes have you seen in medicine because of the influence of HIV and AIDS? Well, of course, there's all those infection control measures, which, of course, we should have been implementing before because we knew about hepatitis B, which is transmitted in exactly the same way as HIV and is more infectious than HIV. But not just the infection control. The other important thing, I think, is that it really revolutionised the way in which doctor 
the doctor-patient relationship became um, transformed, that no longer was it the case where the doctor directed from a position of authority, but where the doctor had to learn to work with the patient and where if the patient wanted to have input into the way he or she was managed, they were able to do so. I'd imagine you'd have some extraordinary friendships, relationships, associations with former patients long uh, beyond uh, your hours of practice because of that very need to be so um, so close to yeah. work together. Is that the case? I mean, you, you would count amongst many of your friends, former patients? Indeed. Um, I've just had, you know, over the last month, two book launches, one in Melbourne, one in Sydney. And the really touching thing was um, how many old patients of mine attended those Wonderful. book launches. Yes. Mm-hmm. The book that David is speaking of is uh, Tell Me I'm Okay, and it's just been released. Uh, and if you would love to hear more of David's stories in the field, both from uh, Vietnam all the way uh, via London to working in the field of HIV and AIDS, then Tell Me I'm Okay is the book to look for. And the author and tonight's guest is Dr. David Bradford. Thank you so much for, for joining us, David. It's pleasure, a pleasure to meet David. you. And tonight's panellists, of course, are Katie Miller, Melbourne lawyer. And uh, thanks again, Katie. Uh, thanks for all your uh, contributions. I look always forward fun. to Always fun. Uh, and Steve Allen, uh, who... Uh, Peter Mack, a psychiatrist, his new book out is Mental, and uh, there'll be several events happening at the Melbourne Writers' Festival uh, with your co-author, I believe, Catherine Devney, uh, at uh, look at the Melbourne Writers' Festival website.